Hi, I'm Jade Siri Ramos. I am the producer of A Public Affair. Did you know you can find our show anywhere you get podcasts? Just search A Public Affair wherever you like to listen, and you can find us, and you'll never miss an episode. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground, another pirate station. We bring the truth to places truth has never heard before. We bring the Good afternoon and welcome to A Public Affair. My name is Rochelle Wilson and I'll be your host this hour, filling in for Esty Denour. We're in the midst of a pledge drive right now, and we'd like to thank Nick Clapp for making a generous pledge to Back to the Country last hour. Nick's favorite shows are, or excuse me, Mud Acres. Uh, Nick's favorite shows are Mud Acres, Back to the Country, and Mob- Rob McClure Weather Report. So thanks so much, Nick. You can join Nick in supporting the station by calling us this hour at 608-256-2001, extension 1, or online at wortfm.org. But first, let's get to our story today. There's a multi-billion dollar industry that's hiding in plain sight here in the United States. In 2021, its products accounted for 2.69% of the United States' total exports. That's more than some common crops, including soybeans. Any guesses? I'm talking about blood plasma extraction. You may have gone to a plasma center at some point in your life to earn some extra money. If so, you're one of millions of Americans. Most people who sell their plasma are doing so because they struggle to get by, even in good jobs like teaching, manufacturing, or journalism. Journalist Kathleen McLaughlin takes a close, hard look at this story from the inside out in her new book, Blood Money, just out this week. She traces the story from China all the way to the Mountain West in Rexburg, Idaho, onto Flint, Michigan, and the U.S.-Mexico borderlands in El Paso, Texas. Today, she joins us to talk about the blood industry. Kathleen McLaughlin is an award-winning journalist who reports and writes about the consequences of economic inequality around the world. She's a former Knight Science Journalism Fellow at MIT and has won multiple awards for her reporting on labor in China. She's the author of Blood Money, the story of life, death, and profit inside America's blood industry. Kathleen McLaughlin, welcome to A Public Affair. Thanks, Rochelle. I'm really happy to be here. Well, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. And I've been so excited to talk to you. I was telling you, I had seen some interviews online last month, and I was super excited to dive into your book and just get a chance to chat with you about this thing that I mentioned is kind of hidden in plain sight here in the U.S. Yeah, it's been it's been a really interesting journey for me personally, because um, I've known about the plasma industry for a long time. Most people I have talked to about it kind of don't know, but then the people who know really know. So it is kind of, it's so layered, you know, I mean, it is, I think what's really hidden to most people, even those who sell plasma, is just how big it is and how widespread and how common it is and how woven into kind of the fabric of our society it's become. That's right. And actually, that kind of leads into the first question that I had for you, because we've talked on this show about zombie capitalism and vampire capitalism. But this story takes vampire capitalism to a whole new literal level. (laughs) And I was wondering if you you could can you give us a little bit of the, the scale and the scope of the blood industry and how did the U.S. become the blood capital of the world? Well, the short answer, I mean, the the shortest answer, I guess, the most important thing to know in all of this is the United States is one of only five countries in the world that allows payment for plasma donations. So this practice is banned in most of the world because it can be seen as coercive. So there's been ethical discussions in global health bodies and other places where um, they've decided that this is unethical because it can lead to coercion. Um, So The United States made this decision, I think, kind of accidentally a long time ago. Um, And our we have a we have a large population, and we have a large population of people who live in economic precarity. We have a lot of people who need extra money, even when they're working, as you mentioned, full time in what used to be middle class jobs. So we have a huge number of people that this appeals to, Um, and. I think that as our country's social safety net has kind of fragmented and disappeared and things have gotten more expensive, the cost of college, the cost of housing, 
just general inflation is on the rise, um, selling plasma has become more appealing to a whole lot of people. So at the current moment, there are around a thousand paid plasma extraction centers in the country, but the, the number is always growing. Um, and that's a huge increase from where we were even 15 or so years ago. I believe that the number has tripled in that time period. Um, in terms of how many Americans do this, it's very hard to get an actual number of the donors in a given year. So you can look at the units of plasma that are extracted from people. And I believe that somewhere the latest figure was around 50 million units of plasma extracted from people in one year. Now you kind of make a guess that some people are doing that very often. Some people are only doing it once in a while. Um, and if you kind of land in the middle somewhere, you're still talking about 10, 20 million people a year who might be selling plasma, which is a huge percentage of our population. I think what I'm comfortable saying is that there are millions of Americans who have done this. So I'm, you know, I, I don't think I'd make a guess on how many are doing it in a year. You can look at, like I said, the end product numbers. Um, but I'm very comfortable in saying that millions of Americans have done this, especially in the last 10 to 20 years. Well, I think people are curious about this, at least I am. Why aren't blood donations compensated and yet plasma donations are? I mean, I'm sure there's... I, w I would I'm also like to know this. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those things that's like, we, we live in this situation and in this society and this thing occurs, but it doesn't feel like there's ever been a big conversation or a big debate that led to this happening. So let me give you an example right now. And it's, this has been going on in, for a couple of years. Canada has been having an extended debate over whether or not they could pay plasma donors. And it's a, it's a huge conversation between, you know, um, ethicists, medical scientists, all sorts of people who are concerned about the implications, and then all sorts of people who are concerned about plasma shortages and think that the country should have more resources to create these valuable drugs that plasma is intended to make. Um, I don't think we ever had that conversation in the United States. I think it's one of these industries that just crept into existence and made its way around our economic fault lines um, and has just kept growing primarily because the people who sell plasma are not wealthy or powerful. And I mean, we all know our country runs on um, the concerns of the wealthy and the powerful. So people who are selling plasma don't have a big voice in this country, I would say. So if there are, you know, if there, if there are concerns that people are being exploited or it feels coercive, I think that, um, that might not be heard. So I do think it's kind of, I don't want to say accidental, but I think because of who this practice affects and the way that we view um, economically marginalized people in this country generally, that's how we ended up here. This isn't a practice that concerns the families of members of Congress, for example. <laughs> you know, this is a different socioeconomic segment in our society that doesn't have a big voice or a lot of power. If you're just joining us, you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. My name is Rochelle Wilson, and today we're talking about vampire capitalism and the blood industry with journalist Kathleen McLaughlin. I'm joined in the studio today by Nate Carlin, a news volunteer here at WORT. Nate, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good, Rochelle. How about you? You know, I'm doing great. Uh, why are you here today? Well, we're here because we're in the middle of our winter 2023 fundraising drive. And uh, we're hoping to get some callers in and uh, maybe some donations. That's right. We know listeners of A Public Affair tune in to hear about topics that they just won't hear elsewhere. We especially know that the Friday listeners really value Estee's wide international coverage. And I'm just going to go down the list here. This has recently included shows about Israel-Palestine, protests in Iran, the coup in Peru, the rise of Bolsonaro in Brazil, U.S.-China relations, and the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria last month. And that's just a glimpse at some of the topics that she He's been covering. So we know that you tune in on Fridays to hear about really vital topics like what we're talking about today, the, the blood industry here in the U.S. 
and we want to invite you to pledge. How can folks support us, Nate? Well, they can give us a call at 608-256-2001, or they can always go online at wartfm.org. Yeah, WRTFM.org. That's the place to go if you want to give uh, with credit card or PayPal. And you can call 608-256-2001, extension 1, to show your support. And we really are needing folks to show up today because we want to hear from 15 of you this hour. Yeah, that's the problem of having such a fun show on Fridays. We expect a lot from the listeners. That's true. That's right. So we do want to hear from you. If you listen to this show, if you value this show, we do want to hear from you this hour. And we're we're needing to hear from like a person every three minutes. That's yeah. the simple math I did. I've got good news. We've already heard from someone. Oh, wonderful. Harry Richardson wanted us to know that their favorite shows are Public Affair, Local News, and Labor Radio. Those Thanks, are, Harry Richardson. Yeah, those are all great local news reporting that we have here on WORT. Uh, just as a final note, you can give us a call, 608-256-2001, extension 1, and we'd love to thank you on air. All right, back to Kathleen McLaughlin and uh, her reporting on the blood industry. Uh, we'll get into the different sites that you visited for your reporting and some of the people you met, but I wanted to start here. What are some of the common misconceptions that people have about people who give their plasma? Yeah, I think that the most common misconceptions that a lot of people had is that this practice is only engaged in by unhoused people, by um, substance abusers, by, you know, kind of people who are the most marginalized in society, the poorest of the poor, the people who have absolutely nothing. The truth is, most people who are unhoused are already screened out of the process. The plasma donation centers are very strict about protocols trying to screen out intravenous drug users. Um, the truth is this, this practice is actually really a whole lot of people who work full time and just don't make quite enough to make ends meet. Or they work full time and they want to take a vacation, but they can't afford to save up for a vacation. Or they work full time, but it's not enough to pay off their student loans, which is just completely bonkers to me. And then there is the, the one segment to it, which I think if you're doing it, you know, and college students know, but college students are a huge target population for selling plasma. So, you know, you go anywhere that has a big university, particularly a public university where a lot of the students are not wealthy, this is just super common. So I think there's an idea that it's basically, um, you know, the, the most marginalized, the poorest of the poor, people who are really the most down on their luck. And the truth is that the population who's selling plasma is a lot bigger than that. And if you start asking people, you probably know someone who's done it. The other night I had a, a book talk in Seattle. And beforehand, I had some dinner with friends. And, you know, we were just kind of talking about the book. And two of my friends at the table were like, yeah. We did that for three years. And it's just, it, it happens all the time now because a lot of people, I think, feel like they're going to be judged if they tell you that they sell plasma, that they're going to be stigmatized somehow. And so they don't talk about it necessarily. But when you, when you start asking people or discussing it, so many people open up about it and they're like, yeah, I used to do that because I didn't make enough money to, you know, pay for gas to get to work. So it's really almost like an income supplement for a whole lot of people, if that makes sense. And that surprised me. I, I knew that it was in some cases. I didn't know that that was such a common experience that it would be supplemental for a lot of people. Right. Well, and here in Madison, which is the home of a major university and a metro area population of about half a million, we have about half a dozen plasma centers from my very quick informal count. And that's, yeah. you know, it seems like maybe that population is getting targeted here as well. And I think about it, I, I had heard of plasma donation growing up, but it wasn't until I went to college that it kind of became more in the vernacular where people were just talking about doing it to buy books, 
um, to pay for tuition and living expenses, you know, whatever it may be. Um, and actually, I want to kind of interrupt myself here really quick to say we would actually love to hear from folks who want to share their own plasma stories. And you can call us this hour at 608-256-2001, extension 9. And that's what will get you on the air with us if you would like to share your story. And of course, Anon anonymity <laughs> is is fine as well. <laughs> so um, Kathleen McLaughlin, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about this college student population. You write in the book about something you call the higher education trap. What does that, how does that fit into the picture here? Well, I mean, in this country, we have um, developed an expectation that in order to have some, some kind of class mobility or be successful or earn a good income, et cetera, et cetera, that you have to go to college, like that higher education is the most important thing that you can possibly do. But we've also allowed it to become priced out of reach for most people. So you have incredible amounts of student debt. You have people who, like when I went to college in the 90s, I sound like a total old person, but this is true. When I went to college in the 90s, which was, which is what, 25 years ago, you could still actually work your way through college at a public university. That isn't possible anymore. Nobody can do that. So we've created this situation where young people are expected to get a higher education, but we haven't give them, given them adequate resources to pay for it. And one of the things I've really noticed in all of this is um, in terms of who knows about selling plasma and who doesn't, there is such an age gap. So you ask someone who's 22 if they know, and oh my God, they know all about it. They know people who do it. They might do it themselves. You have someone who's, I would say, over 50, and they generally are much more clueless about it. So it's there's because I think the cost of higher education has gotten completely out of hand, um, and student debt is out of hand, this is just something that's much more prevalent with younger people right now. And I should say, it's not just selling plasma, selling um, girls selling eggs is a big thing as well. And I mentioned that in the book that, you know, there is a, a targeting of young women in college to sell their eggs. So we're kind of preying on people who are trying to improve their class mobility, maybe, or, you know, improve their chances of landing a good job or whatever. We're preying on them and their bodies in this system, I think. Yeah, you write about that in a section called The Blood of Our Youth. And I was also really struck in that section with kind of the way that part of what's happening here is that youth are told you're healthy, you're vibrant. They're maybe not thinking ahead about their own health in five years or 10 years or 50 years. Can you get a little bit into that? Like, are, what are the health ramifications of giving your plasma two times a week every week for a year? Sure. So the the real issue to me is that we don't really have a lot of good long-term studies about that. So there isn't a lot of credible science to tell us what the implications might be. I will say that anecdotally from the people that I interviewed, if they did feel like crap after donating, which a lot of them did. There are a lot of stories of fatigue. Some people felt sick to their stomach. I mean, I I've talked to people that basically would donate plasma and then have to go home and sleep the rest of the day. They were so tired. Those things do seem to go away once you stop. Um, but in terms of, you know, th there is one study, I believe, that shows, um, and this is mentioned in the book, that long-term plasma donation can um, lower the amount of proteins in your blood. So there are some little things. There isn't a big scientific data set that says this is terrible for you. It's more a matter of are we protecting people's health adequately? Like if you're a college student and you're selling plasma twice a week and it makes you really tired, are you able to do your schoolwork? Are you able to study like you should be? I don't know. Um, and are we paying people enough for this? Like at this point, I'm kind of really ambivalent on whether or not paid plasma extraction is the problem. What I see as the problem, it's to me a symptom of all of these greater problems and our kind of failure to address any of them or discuss them in any kind of meaningful way. So, I mean, what I tell plasma donors that I've talked to who are like, oh God, should I be worried? 
I mean, I haven't seen any evidence that they should be worried it's damaging their health long term. The bigger concern to me is, are we studying it enough? Is there enough scientific data to make a kind of informed statement about that? And then secondly, are we paying people enough and are we demanding too much of them? Like twice a week, every week for a year to me is a lot. That's right. And it seems like this story is filled with contradictions. Like on the one hand, it almost feels like you mentioned earlier, unethical to pay anyone at all because it kind of has this coercive element or it captures a certain segment of the population. But on the other hand, once you do start paying people, it seems like we're really giving them a pittance and it's really not enough to compensate for their time. And especially, as you say, the lost hours that they might have throughout the rest of the day. And like, I felt that contradiction so alive throughout the book and just still don't know what to do about it, I guess. I know. And I I mean, I reported on this for years and I still don't know what to do about it either. I mean, I don't think that you can ban the practice. It's not, we built it into our system. It's like banning the dollar store or banning pawn shops. This is something that is woven into the system, but um, it just feels like the payment schedule and the actual timing schedule, how they try to encourage people to come back as often as possible, that's what feels so exhausting to me. You know, just thinking about what people have to put into it and put up with it seems a little bit over the top. That's right. And I, one of the kind of macabre, I mean, there was many macabre stories throughout your book, but one of them that really <laughs> struck me was this COVID scandal that kind of ended up, you know, being maybe oh more um, apocryphal than real. I don't know. Do you want to share with that with us? Sure. So this was early on in the pandemic before vaccines were widely available. Um, the University in Rexburg, which is Brigham Young University, Idaho, put out a warning to the student body um, telling people that there had been reports of students attempting to get COVID-19 so that their plasma would fetch a higher price when they went to sell plasma. So maybe I should just tell you Rexburg is a very unusual place. Um, It's a small city. I think it's 35,000 people with a very large university. Um, It is predominantly Mormon. I believe 96% Mormon. The university is Mormon University. The practice of selling plasma, they have two plasma centers in this town. Um, The practice of selling plasma there is just super common. You know, there, there's one plasma center right near the campus. There's another one right downtown on Main Street. It's really, I would say, compared to other places I went to, maybe less stigmatized. Um, and so in the beginning of the pandemic, when people were trying to come up with basically any possible treatment for COVID, um, they began, scientists began looking at the use of what it's called convalescent plasma. So you use the plasma from people who've had the virus and developed antibodies to it to treat people with the virus. And the, and the thought is that the antibodies from other people can help someone with the virus fight the disease. Um, a lot of the studies in that did not pan out into anything, but the result of that endeavor, and this was heavily backed by the federal government, invested a ton of money into it and all sorts of things. But the issue there is you need to collect a lot of blood plasma, a lot more than you do in normal times because you have a new virus that you're fighting. And you need the blood plasma of people who have specifically had COVID. So when this endeavor started, plasma companies involved in the research effort began offering people who had had COVID a whole lot more for their plasma. And, you know, the students in Rexburg knew this I mean, they were paying attention because they're at the plasma center all the time. And so they knew that they would get a lot higher rate if they had COVID. Now keep in mind, we didn't have vaccines then. The disease was still quite deadly. We didn't know what it was doing to people. But at the same time, you know, people who were younger had been told it wasn't going to kill them. Because if you remember in the beginning, this was really passed off as, oh, unless you have XYZ, Um, pre-existing condition or you're old, you're probably safe. So we really kind of made younger people believe that it wouldn't do any any serious harm to them. And so there was um, 
this notice came out from the university. I went to Rexburg, I think, four or five times to talk to people. And I never found anyone who confirmed that it was true. However, they all said, yeah, it could be. So there was no like, no, this would never happen. It was more like, yeah, probably. But no one wanted to cop to it either, which I totally get. I wouldn't if I, you know, I mean, especially since the school had put out this really stern warning and threatened consequences to anyone who did it. But I mean, you know, people were pretty honest about it and were like, yeah, it paid a lot more. Why wouldn't you do that? If you're just joining us, you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. My name is Rochelle Wilson, and today we're talking to Kathleen McLaughlin, award-winning journalist and author of the new book, Blood Money. If you have a question for Kathleen McLaughlin or you have your own story of selling plasma, we'd love to hear from you today. You can join the conversation by giving us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also reach out via the A Public Affair page on Facebook or on Twitter at WORT Talk. And I've got my co-pilot Nate here with me. It looks like we have a few folks to thank. We do have someone to thank. We would like to thank Mike for their first time donation. Oh, wonderful. Mike's favorite shows are A Public Affair. He says he loves all shows, but he really wants to express gratitude for not being censored when he calls in. He says, I never get cut off. Well, thanks, Mike. And maybe that's a good way to transition to uh, our theme of this uh, pledge drive, which is we're listening. Community radio is, of course, a two-way street, and we take a lot of pride in making sure that our supporters and our listeners feel like they can participate in the community. Give us a call at 608-256-2001. If you want to donate, go ahead. Go to extension 1. If you want to give your comment, extension 9. And, of course, you can always go online at wortfm.org. Yeah, that's one of my favorite things about this show, about a public affair, whether I'm producing it, hosting it, or just listening in, is that we take those listener calls and they've really changed the landscape sometimes of what we talked about and helped me see things in a new way and from a new light. And it's the community just talking to each other. And I really value that. And if you value it too, we need to hear from you. You need to be one of the 13 additional people who call in the next circa 25 minutes to 608-256-2001. One extension one. And we're on the air with Kathleen McLaughlin, who is a journalist um, and just released her first book, Blood Money. And in that book, Kathleen, you actually talk about local news and kind of news deserts. How how do news deserts and plasma centers kind of relate? Oh, Kathleen is not on air. Oh, oh. All right, we're good. Well, go ahead, Kathleen. We were talking about news deserts and plasma centers, and what's the connection there? Um, I mean, they're very, for one thing, they're very often the same places. So if you look kind of geographically at where news deserts are, and should I explain what news de- deserts are? Let's they're hear places about it. Where local news has really, I would say, dried up. So um, massive staff cuts at local newspapers, staff cuts at television and radio stations Um, where I live. So I live in a small city in Montana and um, I used to work at it when I first started in journalism. I worked at a newspaper in Montana that had 45 journalists on staff and today they have two. So it's this giant contraction of information to people. And I think along with that, you know, we see a lot less reporting about people in their communities. And so you don't see, um, you very often don't see people's stories reflected back to them. And I would say that news, news deserts and plasma centers tend to be in similar places, largely because um, of economic reasons, right? It isn't that it isn't that plasma centers are necessarily popping up in places where there's no local news because of the lack of local news. It's because these are places that have kind of been left behind economically. So the Rust Belt, for example, the Mountain West, um, where inequality is really on the rise and really all over the country, you know, our news, our information sources have faded away in these places that aren't major cities on a coast. So for example, whereas the New York Times and Washington Post are doing better than ever, 
local newspapers are really, really struggling. And what that means is if you live in a place like this, you might not know what's going on in your community. Um, relatedly, I guess, a couple of the people that I've interviewed, maybe more than a couple, a few of the people I've interviewed um, who sell plasma are local journalists. So it used to be when I started out in journalism as a local news reporter, it was very much a middle-class job. It was something that you could do um, and make a decent living. You were never going to get rich, but you could pay for housing. You could pay for things. You could have a very nice middle-class existence. The local reporters that I interviewed in the course of this right now, their salaries just haven't kept pace with the cost of living in the United States. And so they're doing it as an income supplement. Um, one woman I talked to did it to pay to go to a friend's wedding, which like, I mean, why, sh why wouldn't you be able to go to a friend's wedding? That's something you should be able to do. Um, another woman that I spoke with was doing it to buy groceries. So she has a, a full-time good job in journalism, but it's just not enough. And so that there is a linkage, I think, between the two, first of all, just in terms of the lack of information about economic precarity in communities and kind of what is happening in people's communities, but also people who are working in this industry, which is really struggling right now, are struggling financially, which then leads to more dependence on plasma. Thank you for that. We do have a caller on the line. Ron, you're on the air. Thanks. Uh, this is a follow-up um, to when you were on a different radio station a week or so ago. Um, uh -huh. Did China start soliciting plasma from poor farmers in China before the United States publicly announced that our plasma supply and blood supply were contaminated with HIV? That's that's a first question. Um, a second, a couple comments quick. Um, You, you can leave Ron oh, on. I'm so can sorry, you turn I just back lost up? the sound. Is Ron still on? I'm here. Okay, sorry, Ron. Okay. Can you, um, can you be quick? We didn't hear so the that second we can, question. Yeah, we didn't hear the second part, but can you? Okay, you got the part about China when We'd... they knew that the U.S. was contaminated. Right, we got that. Yep. Um, my late wife received one unit of convalescent plasma during the 27 days before her first positive test for COVID-19 and the day she passed away. Uh, so we don't know how much it helped. And then a correction, it's now the dollar and 25 cent store, but I haven't changed the signs on the one <laughs> Ron, thank you so much. And, and our, our condolences about what happened in your family. We're so sorry for your loss. And um, yeah, Kathleen, what are your responses to Ron's comments? Well, so Ron is asking about the plasma economy in China, which I should maybe back up a little bit and tell your listeners, your other listeners. Um, I lived in China for 15 years and worked as a journalist there. And part of my reporting there was about something that happened before I arrived, which was China essentially tried to create an industry built on the blood plasma of poor people in one particular province. And back then it was when the virus that causes AIDS was kind of spreading without control. We didn't know exactly how it spread. There was also very limited treatment for AIDS at that time. So it was a, it was a quite deadly disease. Um, and HIV got into the plasma system in this province where people were selling their plasma. They were using unsafe collection practices. So reusing needles, reusing tubing, and the virus spread among plasma donors and killed a whole lot of people. So um, the question was, if China started this around the, the same time that the United States discovered HIV in the blood system, is that right? I don't think we have or Ron on the line. After. Yeah, okay. I don't think we have him on okay. the line, so go I ahead. And... Ron, <laughs> I think what Ron wanted to know is whether China started this system in response to um United States' own outbreak of HIV in the plasma system. And my answer to that is maybe. It was really hard for me to tell timing-wise. There wasn't a lot of great historical analysis on the timing of it. But these two things did happen right around the same time. And there was some export 
from the U.S. of tainted blood products to other countries in the world. And so it kind of, to me, seemed like China had done this in response to global blood exports being tainted with HIV, and they thought they could create a safer system with their own domestic supply of blood, basically. All right. And oh, the I'm sorry. second question... Remind me what the second question is. I'm well, so I think we have a follow-up question from a listener who's on the line right now. So we'll go ahead and take that next. Mike, you're on the air. Okay. Yeah, hi. This is somewhat of a follow-up question to what Ron said. Um, so I just reviewed uh, a study of with over a thousand over a thousand participants where they where they examine the blood, and all the participants in the study had tested positive for COVID, had symptoms of COVID, and were all vaccinated against COVID. So they had, they had before and after blood samples. Um, and um, all the blood samples after were showing that the red blood cells had become all disformed and were also coagulating very heavily. So when you did your book, I was just wondering if you were finding any concerns with, uh, with the future safety of the blood. Um, and that's basically my question. Thanks, Thank Mike. You, you know, um, I personally did not run into that. I will say most of my reporting did not involve COVID, but I, I guess personally, as someone who receives a medication made from blood plasma products. Uh, I think that what we know about COVID is still very limited. And, you know, anytime you have a new disease emerge like this, it takes a very long time for the science to figure out exactly what it's doing to our body. So that is kind of my concern is that, you know, we've sort of let it run wild in society and we don't really know what it's going to do to us long term. I'll have to look up this study about the red blood cells. It sounds super interesting. So thank you for that. Yes, thanks, Mike. And thanks to all of our callers today. Uh, we are in the midst of Pledge Drive. You're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. And we're needing to hear from 15 listeners this hour. I think we have two. So that means 13 more of you have to call pretty much in the next 13 minutes. We need one caller per minute here to show your support for this radio station and specifically this program. We've now heard from a couple community members right here on the airwaves, and it's a value that we're providing. Um, Nate's here co-piloting with me. Nate, how can folks uh, support WORT? Well, they can always give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 1, or go online at wortfm.org. And we know that people really do pitch in because they value community radio. And just to kind of let you know, we are here at WRT investing in our infrastructure. We're purchasing new soundboards, and we're also planning to replace the mortar on our building, on our station building here on Bedford Street, which, as far as we can tell, hasn't been done for about 40 years. So that's something that we need to get to right away. We also are seeking grants and uh, funneling money towards training new, the next generation of journalists who come from groups that are underrepresented in traditional media. And that's a big commitment that we have, and we can really only do it with listener support. So give us a call, 608 2001 or go extension one or go online to wortfm.org. We're going to get back to our conversation with Kathleen. And first, I wanted to um, read a message that we actually got from a listener who says that she used to donate plasma 35 years ago. She says that she stopped doing it because they brought in TVs and she didn't want to watch them. She was also concerned about contamination, but she's been considering donating again for supplemental income. Kathleen, how familiar does that story sound to you? Oh, yeah, totally. There's a lot of people who do it for a while, quit, and then come back because they're familiar with it, for one thing, right? So it's they know they know the difficulties and the and whether or not it's worth it to them. Yeah, it's really common for people to do it just in 
financial hard times and then stop and then go back to it. That's interesting about the TVs. I am kind of with your caller. That would drive me nuts that everyone was watching the same television. <laughs> so the plasma centers that I have been in don't have that. It's more people on their phones, you know, and they have free Wi-Fi so you can watch whatever on your phone. But um, yeah, that's totally familiar that someone would do it for a while and then quit and then go back to it when they need more money. I understand that. Well, and you speak in your book and you were just speaking now about um, your own chronic illness and kind of your own implication in this story. And in some ways, maybe maybe I buried the lead not asking you about this right away. <laughs> but <laughs> how is it that you found yourself kind of implicated in this story? Because maybe there's this connection that I see between you sort of being bored sitting there getting your blood infusion and all of those people sitting there bored giving that plasma. Yeah, totally. I So about 20 years ago, I was diagnosed with a rare autoimmune disease and the treatment for it is an infusion of a medication made from other people's blood plasma, which takes five to six hours each time. So I you know, people who are donating plasma sit in a chair for an hour bored with a needle stuck in their arm. And um, when I receive the medication, I'm doing the same thing for slightly longer in a day. The amount of time I have spent kind of getting infusions, there's always a part of me that's thinking about where the plasma comes from. Um, it was really interesting to me. I think when I first started getting the medication, I read a package insert that said it was the, the medicine was made from the plasma particles of thousands of different people. And at that time, 20 years ago, I didn't know, I can't think of anyone I knew who sold plasma or donated plasma even in a voluntary system without pay. And so I was always thinking, who are these people? And then I moved to China and lived there for 15 of the last 20 years. And so I kind of missed this boom in the industry. And when I came back, I realized that had happened. And I wanted to figure out who all these people were and the reasons that they were doing it. So that's kind of what led me into this quest. And I should say, I mean, one thing I try and I really want people to understand about this business is that these medications are life-saving. I mean, this plasma is really made into incredible drugs. It helps me live a completely normal life. Um, but the reason that other countries can be pretty comfortable in maintaining bans on paid plasma is we supply a pretty big share of the world's plasma-made drugs. So this isn't just going to Americans like me who have chronic illnesses. This is going to a lot of people in other countries as well. So I've heard people in other countries be kind of, um, let's say, a little bit judgmental about our paid plasma practices. And it's like they don't have to make that decision because we do it and our plasma goes all around the world. That's right. It was almost like you look at a story like this and you expect it to be about science or about medicine. And then what you draw out is this economic component to the story of blood plasma and the enormous industry that we have here. And as you say, it's along these kind of economic fault lines. I know we don't have a ton of time left to get into your reporting in Flint, but I do want to at least introduce listeners to some of the issues that you saw there in Flint and some of the racial disparities that we see in the plasma extraction industry. Yeah, I mean, the, the industry follows the same kind of fault lines as everywhere else in our society, right? So of course it preys, I think, more heavily on communities that have higher populations of people of color, and Flint is one of those. So you'll find, and this is anecdotal because there isn't there there aren't statistics available with racial breakdowns. Um, but there are a lot of plasma centers in places like Flint, which are majority black cities. Um, and it's very interesting to to see how this targeting happens. And Flint itself is just a totally fascinating place. Um, I found Flint was one of my favorite places I went to in the reporting for this book because I think everyone has, or not everyone, but a lot of Americans have this idea that Flint is something it's not. The people in Flint are open and warm and welcoming and there's, you know, fun. I think that people have an idea that everyone in Flint has been poisoned or something. I And I grew up in a town 
that had a big environmental catastrophe. So I kind of felt some allegiance <laughs> with the people of Flint. But yeah, there is, you know, in addition to, I would say, cities in the Rust Belt, the other targeting of people of color is along the U.S.-Mexico border, which has a huge number of plasma collection centers. At one point, there were 10,000 people a week crossing over from Mexico into the U.S. to sell plasma because the practice is banned in Mexico, but they can make a decent income in the U.S. by doing it. And it's not an accident that the U.S.-Mexico border is lined with plasma stations. People know that this is something that's going on. Well, and it, it certainly isn't an accident. You t- speak in the book about um, some research that exists about geotargeting um, of where these centers go. Do you want to share a little about that? Yeah, I mean, that's pretty simple. There's been some studies that show there are higher collections of plasma centers in places, in poor zip codes, essentially. And that totally tracked with my own research visiting these communities. You would see, so Flint, for example, um, has about 80,000 people now, I think. So it's fewer than 100,000 people. And they have a half a dozen plasma centers. If I compare that to um, a similar size city in Montana that has one plasma center. So these places really are targeting lower income communities. So we can hear the uh, the siren in the background and it just seems so fitting. <laughs> this, I'm so sorry. This, I know. I'm like, what is going on out there? <laughs> well, it, I mean, it works, right? It's like we're talking about this total catastrophe of, you know, in the American economy. And I, I just think that your book revealed so much and we really don't have a whole lot of time left. But I, I wanted to ask you, I, you know, what was the thing that maybe surprised you the most during this reporting and what's something, and maybe these are the same thing that you don't often get to share in an interview like this that you don't get asked about, but you do wish that people knew. Yeah. I mean, first of all, the thing that surprised me is just how widespread this is. And, and I think that for given how widespread it is, the, the lack of awareness of it is shocking to me, that this is really something a lot of Americans rely on to get by, but there isn't a, a widespread national awareness of this. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, that's really the thing that, that has stuck out with me the entire time is that I can talk to wealthier people who live in New York and they think this is a very niche topic. But if you talk to someone who lives in Flint or you talk to someone who lives in Rexburg, it's not a niche topic. It's just a common part of life. So this spread between, I guess, what people in different socioeconomics know or socioeconomic classes know about this practice has been really revealing and shocking to me. And it, as you mentioned before, you know, this really did start out for me as a science book. I mean, I'm a former science reporter, I guess, still current. Um, And I thought, well, this is going to be, you know, a nice science book about a thing that doesn't affect a ton of people. I thought the number would be somewhere around 500,000 people who might be selling plasma. And then I realized this is much more about our broken systems and about the fact that we don't take care of people in this country, you know, and it isn't just the poorest of the poor. It's a whole lot more people than that. Well, and I wanted to thank you, too, for getting personal in the book and sharing about your own chronic illness, because I think that's a genre, the kind of memoir about illness that I guess has a certain stigma or something in in the American publishing landscape. And we sort of expect certain things from people who are sick. And we basically expect people to hide their disabilities and hide their illnesses and be productive so that they can have these jobs that don't pay them enough. And then they have to go to the plasma center. I mean, that's, isn't it just... <laughs> I, uh, what, what was that like it's for true. you making making the decision to get personal in your book? It was really hard. And it was really hard not because I don't I mean, I will talk to people I know and trust about it. But it was really difficult to kind of open myself up to criticism to ableism, to Uh, discrimination, you know, to all of those things that you know are embedded in our culture. And I've worked really hard to avoid that. You know, I keep this illness private, but I also knew that 
um, if I wanted to write this book and I wanted to tell this story, it was the only way to do it. Is it, it, it kind of amounted to me to a fair trade. I mean, I'm asking other people who are financially vulnerable enough that they are selling pieces of themselves to tell me about their lives. So I feel like I owe it to them to tell them why I'm, I'm writing this story. I really appreciated that too, how attendant you were to the ways in which journalism is a bit of an extractive industry in and of itself, even though we have these noble aims of where these stories go and making sure that they get told, it is people essentially having to trust uh, that reporter. And it seems like you kind of had a keen awareness of that throughout your reporting. Yeah, I just think, I mean, I've been a reporter for a very long time and I know sometimes you show up in a place and you ask people about their desperate moments and then you just walk away and you never (laughs) think about them again and you never kind of look back and say, I wonder how they're doing. And I just couldn't do that with this story. I mean, it felt, it already felt kind of strange to go and ask people about this personal thing, but it wasn't going to be possible to do it in a typical way. So I let, you know, I let people choose if they wanted to use their real names or not, things like that. That's the nice thing about writing a book is you can make different choices than you would if you're writing for a newspaper. You can really protect people's anonymity if they want to be protected. Um, And then I won't be so concerned about looking back in five years and thinking, God, I hope I didn't do something that, you know, damaged this person's life in some way. You've been listening to Kathleen McLaughlin. She's an award-winning journalist who reports and writes about the consequences of economic inequality around the world. She's a former Knight Science Journalism Fellow at MIT and has won multiple awards for her reporting on labor in China. She is the author of Blood Money, the story of life, death, and profit inside America's blood industry. It's out now, and I highly recommend that if folks are interested in the conversation we had today, there's just so much more in the book. Thank you so much, Kathleen, for joining us. Thank you, Rochelle. This was great. Yeah, it was wonderful speaking with you, and we really appreciate it. So I'm here in these last few minutes of our show with Nate here co-piloting with me. It looks like we got another pledge, Nate. We do. We'd like to thank Brian. Brian says his favorite uh, shows are Public Affair, Democracy Now!, and Jazz. That's great. Well, thanks so much to Brian for donating. Does that bring us up to three? It does. Three, three, of, three of the 15 that we need. Hmm. I don't I don't know. I, I think that we can get a flood of calls. And I know there's a few phone answers out there. Why don't you pull what are who are our phone answers today, Nate? Yeah, for we like to thank for this hour, Chris, Gary and Kira, who are our phone answers and Patty, who is our receptionist. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks so much for that. So please keep those calls coming in. 608 608- 8256-2001 extension 1 show your support for the show that we just did talking about the blood industry in the United States we know that you love to hear the hard hitting topics especially on Fridays and we'd like to thank uh, Harry Richardson Mike and Brian for their donations this hour we appreciate it Yes, thank you so much to our donors this hour. Thank you to our callers this hour. Yes. Thank you to Kathleen McLaughlin for joining us. Thanks to Nate for being my co-pilot here today. <laughs> uh, this hour of radio was produced by Jada Seri Ramos and hosted by me, Rochelle Wilson. Summer Coffer and the soundboard and WRT News Director Shally Pittman provided support. Up next, Mel and Floyd will bring some laughter and joy to your Friday afternoon. Stay tuned for that and support WORT by calling 608-256-2001, extension 1, or online at wortfm.org. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. Live and direct, we come and never pre-recorded With information that will never be reported Disregard the mainstream, media distorted